Hi, Vox Tablet listeners. It's Sarah Ivory, the host of Vox Tablet. Welcome back. Today, we're looking back at a great Yiddish writer. If it weren't for Isaac Bezebeth Singer, there's a pretty good chance you'd be familiar with the name Chaim Grada. The two writers were contemporaries who fled the Russian Empire, and they both ended up in New York City. They both were major figures in the Yiddish literary world. But while Singer was celebrated for his colorful portraits of Stedda life, he even received a Nobel Prize, if you recall, in 1978, Grada's reach was much more limited. After his death, that was in 1982, there were attempts made to publish more of his work. But his wife, Inna Grada, was incredibly protective of his estate, and she barred virtually all access to it. Then, Inagrata died. That was a little bit more than a year ago. Since then, Yiddishists have thrilled at the possibility that more of Chaim Grada's stories, more of his novels, and more of his poems will see the light of day. Where all those papers and manuscripts ultimately end up will be decided by the public administrator of the Bronx. That's where the Gradas lived. In the meantime, the Evo Institute for Jewish Research is the archive's provisional caretaker. Today, we're at the Evo Institute talking to its executive director, Jonathan Brent, about the significance of this vast archive. Jonathan Brent, thanks for having us. Thank you for your interest. It's more interest by public media than has ever been shown before to Chaim Grada. Better late than never. <laughs> Let's start with the basics. Can you give us a little background on who Chaim Grada was? Chaim Grada was the son of a highly educated rabbinical family. Uh, he came out of the milieu of great learning in Vilna. Uh, he married into a family that was equally learned and uh, austere, I would say. Uh, great roots in, in the rabbinical traditions of Vilna and of the Jewish people. He broke away from that as a young man in Vilna. Uh, cutting his ties to orthodoxy. And this produced a tension that continued throughout his entire life between his, his great love of the Jewish uh, religious tradition and his skepticism, his doubt, and ultimately the despair that he felt about Jewish history, about Jewish experience, and certainly about the great tragedy of Jewish life in Eastern Europe. What were his best-known works? Well, his best-known works in America are My Mother's Sabbath Days, uh, The Yeshiva, The Aguna, uh, Rabbis and Wives. I would say those are probably his best-known works. And what is, if you can, uh, characterize a central thread? What is the central thread that runs through these, these works? If I were going to try to position Chaim Grada, not just in, in, in the world of Yiddish literature, where I think he has no peer, uh, Isaac Bashiva Singer notwithstanding, I would say he is to, or his ambition in Yiddish literature was comparable to uh, William Faulkner's ambition for American literature. That is to say, it is a regional Literature, but within that region, he explores every nuance of the soul of the Jewish people, and his region was the region of Vilna, the region of Lithuania. He explores that the way Faulkner explored the South in America. He knows the 
mentality of it. He knows the the habits. He knows the dirty secrets of it. He knows the tempestuous conflicts. Uh, if I were to try to characterize his work, I would say there is, uh, in everything he wrote, a great elegiac quality, a mourning for a past that is torn apart by internal um, intellectual divisions, social divisions, uh, political divisions. And he, his, his great uh, contribution, it seems to me, is his understanding of the power of the Jewish intellectual tradition that produced these divisions that fueled the terrible and terrific debates that, that tore that society apart before the Holocaust. And it was something that fascinated him that he could never let go of. It entered into the personal lives of his characters, into their sexual lives, into their uh, daily uh, affairs in the marketplace, uh, their political aspirations. And so his panorama is quite different from from Isaac Besheva Singer. Isaac, Isaac Besheva Singer explored the, the folk world, uh, the folk substratum of Jewish imagination. He explored the uh, eccentricities uh, and idiosyncrasies of uh, the, the passions of his characters, the quirks of their histories. Uh, uh, many of his novels are set in America. His, his imagination is a, a wildly uh, roving bundle of energy. It is not confined by space. But Chaim Grada is, is a situated writer. For him, place is everything. And, and that place has profound importance. And, and I, I, let me, I want to just go on with this for yes, a minute. Please. Because m- Americans do not understand the importance of place. Because we are an essentially deracinated uh, 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 people. We all come from someplace else. We deride the idea of the fixation with a place, with a home. Uh, we all put up a little sign, home sweet home, but where is our home? Uh, how many people in New York City really are at home here and how many are passing through here? But the Jews of Vilna had a home that was a home for 700 years. And he explores... I think, above all, the meaning of home. Did he write about Vilna once he was here? I mean, was his home spiritually still yes. in Vilna? In yes, Vilna? always. He was here. He lived the majority of his life in America. And yet his, he could not tear himself away from that magical landscape. And by magical, I don't mean filled with water sprites. Uh, but it's a magical place because of its power to uh, galvanize the imagination. He is mentioned frequently uh, in the company of I.B. Singer, and I wonder, were they friends? What was their relationship? No, it was entirely hostile. Oh, contentious, okay. (laughs) (laughs) As far as I know, I don't know all the particulars of it, but they had no love for each other. They uh, did not support each other, 
at all. And I, I believe that uh, Chaim Grada felt there was far too much sex in I.B. Singer. <laughs> I, I must say, from my point of view, that's one of the great deficiencies of Chaim Grada, which is that when he writes about uh, the sexual life of his characters, he does so with a kind of uh, um, almost awkwardness, I would say. And uh, because in a way he's not so interested in that. He's interested in the experience that is deeper down. Uh, he's interested in their existence rather than their experience, I would put it that way. Whereas Singer is interested in their experience. Maybe you could read a passage of Grada's work for us and we can get a flavor. Well, I, uh, uh, I chose probably his most powerful work and best known in America, My Mother's Sabbath Days. <clears throat> and this is, the, this is the beginning of the work, and this gives you an idea of how utterly and completely he is able to enter into the imagination of a child and, and the imagination of a community. This is called The Garden, and this is, his, this is the autobiographical work, a memoir that he wrote, largely about his mother. But uh, for much of it, uh, she is gone already, and so the book is really about the life that she represented. The Garden. Reb Baruchel and Blumelis children live in Argentina. Their photographs hang on the wall in a semicircle, and beneath them, like a star in the crescent of the moon, hangs the picture of Chofetz Chaim, the sage of Radun. He is a tiny Jew with great eyes full of sadness and kindness, wearing a tall winter hat. Whenever the two old people look at the pictures of their children and their gaze falls upon the sage of Radun, Blumela straightens her kerchief so that not a wisp of hair may be seen, and Reb Baruchel imagines he can hear the Chofetz Chaim sigh, Ah, my children, my dear children, the Messiah is coming any day. And you are not ready. Reb Baruchel's ashen gray beard quivers. He looks at his son's pictures and murmurs. Who knows whether over there they are still good Jews? Who knows whether they even keep the Sabbath? All his life, Reb Baruchel has been a member of the artisan synagogue where the pious craftsmen worship. Now in his old age, when his children are supporting him, he has ceased working. And yet one day every year he becomes a craftsman once again on the morning after the Day of Atonement when he helps to erect the sukkah of the festival of Sukkot. True, he does not himself hammer the nails into the boards, nor does he put up the roof of branches and twigs, but he hands to the builders the rusty old nails which he keeps from year to year in a tin box. When the neighbors make their reckoning of the sukkah's cost and how much each must pay as his share, they forget to acknowledge Reb Baruchel's contribution. His feelings are hurt, and he never fails to remind them, "'And what about my nails?' The neighbors laugh and express the wish that he might live to hand them his rusty nails yet again the following year. One year, shortly before Passover, Reb Baruchel fell ill. His withered body became so hot and feverish that the neighbors thought, soon Blumela will be a widow. And they were mocked by Alterka, the goose dealer, a coarse fellow. This year you'll have to glue the sukkah together with spittle unless Reb Baruchel leaves you his rusty nails in his will. God, however, performed a miracle. And Reb Baruchel survived to totter off his sickbed. Yet, instead of rejoicing, he was downcast. The neighbors, he was sure, would now look upon him as some unholy freak of nature. And so this gives you an idea 
of his interests uh, and and how deep he is in this tradition. Yeah, of course. I mean, even the reference to the Chafetz Chaim, I mean, it doesn't go over my head, but I think it would go over a lot of people's heads. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. And 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 this is the world this little boy grows up in, observing these people and, and singing their songs and so on and so forth. And And at the end, it's over. When he came to this country, though, there was a fairly uh, large immigrant community. I mean, his landsmen, his compatriots, mm-hmm. really, who had been refugees, and their children. And I wonder why his um, popularity was not broader. Well, you can only speculate. And frankly, I was not even aware of Heimgrada until I came to Evo. And <laughs> I... I was a publisher at Yale University and I started a series in Yiddish literature and I did not know about Chaim Grada myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I certainly know about Isaac Beshiva Singer. I know about Bruno Schultz. Why do I know about them? Because they had champions. Because they somehow entered into American uh, discourse. Whereas Chaim Grada, who was fiercely independent and overmastering intelligence. Uh, he kept to himself. He was incredibly proud. He didn't want to have a champion. And frankly, it's one thing to write about the, the, the cuckoo-ness of, of Bruno Schulz's Drachovich or Isaac Singer's madness. It's another to write about Blumela. It's another to write about the Chofetz Chaim. It's another to write about the Aguna and, and try to get people to be interested in what happened in Vilna. He's writing about this tiny little place that is relative to the rest of history. He writes about, a, about stuff that happened there in the interwar, basically the interwar period, mm-hmm. which is a black hole for American Jews. They don't want to touch it. They don't want to know anything about it. Uh, the Holocaust, they will they will pay attention to that because that's pretty clear. That's clear cut. That's suffering here and victimization here and, and here are the guilty and here are the innocent and so on and so forth. But that interwar period is a dreadful time. And and I I really think that it had to do with his subject. It had to do with his seriousness. He's a philosophical writer. He's a writer of ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh unlike Singer, who is not. Uh, and it has to do with the fact of the localization in this place called Vilna. His wife, Ina, she presented some obstacles as well. She did after his death. And and they were um, insuperable. <laughs> she was mad. <laughs> she was also brilliant. Was she a writer in her own right? She was a writer in her own right. One of the things we found in the apartment after... Uh, her death was her manuscript on parasite in Dostoevsky. She was a uh, voracious reader in many languages. She knew Russian and Polish and German and French and Spanish, at least, as did Grada. And she um, was a translator. Mm-hmm. And she was nuts. So you put all of that together, you have a very formidable obstacle because she she could outwit you, outtalk you, outargue you, 
And then when all of that was not enough, she just slammed the door in your face, and that was the end of it. Did you meet her in person? No, I never did. I just have all of the second. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the images of Inagrada that I get from the people I talk with here at Evo and outside of Evo are vivid, immensely vivid to this day. How specifically did she uh, block access to his work and to him? Well, she didn't let anybody get a hold of the materials. But if pressed as to why she wouldn't, what would she say? I mean, what was her well, argument for not? They're ignorant people. How can they translate uh, Grada? They don't know enough to translate Grada. Their Yiddish is not good enough. Their understanding of rabbinics is not good enough. Uh, they don't know Hebrew. They don't know Russian. Uh, they're, they're vulgar Americans. To hell with them. She wanted him to be awarded the Nobel Prize posthumously. And when he wasn't, she was furious. I want to talk a little bit about the archive, which uh, was housed until Inagrata's death in her apartment, in a second floor apartment in the Bronx. And as I understand it, it was completely disorderly there. You visited after her death. Can you describe the scene? What did it look like going in there? Uh, First of all, it was very moving to me to think that the wife of this great writer died in such impoverished conditions. It was an apartment that told a story all by itself. First of all, I did not see this. I saw remnants of it. But the investigators who went there before we were allowed said that the floor was covered with something like uh, a half an inch, a quarter of an inch of black peppercorns. And uh, no one could figure out what this was all about. They thought it was some sort of black magic thing. And we had brought a conservator along, and she said that in the old country, peppercorns were used to keep out cockroaches. And so probably that's what this was all about. But I kept trying to imagine the smell of that apartment with those peppercorns on the floor, the bitterness, you see. And that, to me, was kind of the, the, um, the quality that encompassed everything, just bitterness, bitter, angry. The, the place had an angry, bitter feeling about it. The linoleum was yellow and ripped in various places. The screens to the windows were torn. Uh, The paint was uh, blistering away. The curtains were such that if you touched them, they almost fell apart. It was a little bit like the cross between uh, the the apartment of Miss Havisham and something out of Midnight Cowboy, frankly. Um... The rooms were so crammed with books. We took 20,000 books out of this five-room apartment. Wow. Every room in the house was crammed with books and manuscripts. So you open a drawer or a cabinet where you expect to find a plate or something, and there are books, there are letters stuffed, just mashed in you know sort of you can see the the uh, the anger of smashing stuff in you know and and just throwing stuff piling it up all the all the closets 
filled with uh, bags full of old letters, manuscripts, everything just rammed together. Um, how she could get into bed and get out of bed, I couldn't figure out. In fact, after she died, uh, the the uh, hospital could not get her out of the apartment because they couldn't bring a gurney into the apartment. It was so uh, shut off, you know. They couldn't open the door. They had. To, they, it took them hours to get in there. Well, uh, as far as I know, and it just said to me. This is the end of a great writer in America. Uh, I mean, it was a heartbreaking thing, truly heartbreaking thing. In fact, uh, we weren't even allowed to see the kitchen. Because it was in such, such dis- it disarray? Was, it was, it, they didn't want us to see it. They thought it would be a disgrace to the memory of Mrs. Grata. But all that said, there are the books all arranged neatly. Uh, the the f- uh, uh, German, Spanish, French, Russian, uh, the art books. Um, on one shelf, there's a copy of uh, Finnegan's Wake and a copy of Ulysses. And I, I take the copy of Finnegan's Wake down. I just want to see if who actually read this book. I know nobody who's actually read this book from <laughs> beginning to end. You know. In any case, I take it, and there, literally, there is an inch and a half of dust on the top of this book. I push it off, I open the book, and it's marked up on every page. And so then I look at the back, and on the back are all of these notes. So this is what convinced me that the library has got to be held intact from a literary and scholarly point of view. This library is as important, I believe, as the manuscripts because here we have Heimgrada and it's not entirely clear whether it's Heimgrada or Inagrada because I think they both read the same books and they probably communicated with each other through the books. But this, this is where one sees what he's thinking about certain things so on the um, the shelf there is a whole shelf of Carl Jung and I, I knew he was a very big Jungian fanatic and right next to it is a shelf of Freud so I go to one uh, of the Jung books and I see of course it's all written all marked up and so then I go to uh, Civilization and Discontents, which I was sure must have been one of his favorite books. And absolutely the same thing. And at the top of one page of Civilization and Discontents, he said, See Jung, page <laughs> X, for a completely opposite interpretation. <laughs> you see? So he had arranged his library like warring, like warring parties. That's fantastic, yeah. As in some of his novels. His whole uh, intellectual landscape was set up like in the Aguna where all these rabbis are fighting with each other. And and so that is what's happening in his library itself. So we have the library now in our new warehouse. It's still wrapped. 
And eventually, we're going to uh, make everything available as soon as we can put it in proper order uh, so that those uh, organizations interested in uh, acquiring it can have a look at all of this material. And so will the is the idea that the collection will go, and by collection I mean the books and the manuscripts together, to one of the four institutions vying for it? Uh, it, it? It all depends what the institutions vying for it want. And we should just say that the institutions actually that are kind of in competition are YIVO, Harvard University, the National Yiddish Book Center, and the New York Public Library. And the ransom... The Ransom Center, Center at, U- at, at University, of University of Texas Austin. I didn't know that. Yes. Uh, and did you say the National Library of Israel? No, I didn't. Then so it's should. six. So there's six <laughs> competitors. Those are the ones I know of. Formidable, formidable competition. Yes. So what is the process now uh, in terms of what YIVO has to do, what all of these six institutions have to do in order to make their bid to acquire Chaim Grada's uh, archive? Well, I think that unless uh, the institutions, the other institutions want to buy a pig and a poke, that they're going to have to send somebody here and have a look at what's in those boxes that we have up on our sixth floor right now. Um, We have not looked at these materials either, by the way. We have no idea what's in those boxes. What would be your greatest hope of what you would find in those boxes? I would love to find a last great novel. He was a novelist. He was a great novelist. Um, Or a diary. Uh, One or the other. A journal. If he he kept a journal, that would be a magnificent thing. And uh, without even knowing what it might contain, I would say would and should be publishable. Jonathan Brent, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Jonathan Brent is the executive director of the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research. We spoke with him in his office. Now that we've piqued your interest in Chaim Grada, I want to recommend an article to you, a profile of him that you'll find on tabletmag.com. It's a great piece. It's written by Alan Nadler, who was a student of Grada's at Harvard in the 1970s. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us again next time.